Our news today seems to be filled with more gloom and doom stories than like ever before. Every day there's something about how the world is going up in flames or how the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is ruining our country and tearing it to the ground. And with the rise of inflation and current events, well, I think the tensions are higher than they've ever been before. It's easy then for us to get caught up in really this depressing news all over and these debates that constantly rage around us trying, us, trying to draw us to one side or the other. It's easy to live in fear with all that's taking place around us. But as Christians, with Christ as our King, our main calling in life is not to get caught up in the news or to get sucked into the worldly political battles of our day. Instead, our calling as God's people is to be caught up in the workings of God and what he is doing in this world here today. And that is our main calling this morning, to be caught up in what God is doing today. And by doing that, we find peace. We find purpose. We find meaning in life in a world filled with chaos and turmoil. This brings us then to Zechariah 6. And it's in this chapter we find three workings of God and what he is doing and what he will do. What are these three workings? He is banishing his enemies. He is bringing his Messiah. And he is building his temple. So we began then with this comforting truth that God is banishing his enemies in the final vision of Zechariah, here in verse 1. When Zechariah looks up here in this text, just as he did two previous visions ago, he sees four chariots coming out from between two mountains of bronze. These four chariots that we find here are described in the same colors as the four horses in the opening of vision one in chapter one. Now, as there are four of these horses again, they symbolize God's sovereignty over, really, the four ends of the earth. Or to perhaps modernize that in our day and age, it's to convey that God is sovereign over the north, south, the east, and the west of the world. So with the repetition of these four horses, we then see that there are two primary distinctions between the first vision and the eighth one here. The first main difference is that these horses are attached to chariots. Notice that. Whereas in the first vision, they were just riders on horses meant to scout and report back to God. Now they are attached to these chariots. And this is important for us to recognize because chariots were what we call the tanks of ancient warfare. They were quick, they were well armored, and they often carried an archer and a shield bearer. They were used to flank the enemies of the day and age, and they were used just to cut down and mow down troops. And so the horses being attached to these chariots tell us that they are coming out for war. They mean to do battle. The second main difference we notice then is that these horses are coming out from two bronze mountains. 
why two mountains of, of bronze? We're not entirely sure, and there's much speculation, but the best guess is that these two mountains of bronze are meant to be reminiscent of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 7.15. And as Solomon's temple, with its two bronze pillars, were designed to model the heavenly temple above where God is, so in this vision, we see the horses coming out then from God's holy temple in the heavens. And so they come out from his presence and his temple, and they're prepared for war. They're arrayed in brilliant colors. They are impressive, and they are strong. So this is what Zechariah sees here in the opening three verses. And as he's done numerous times already, he asks, what in the world does all of this mean? Like, great, I have this picture. What does it mean? And the angel tells us that these four chariots with its four riders are the four spirits of heaven going out from God's presence. And they have a mission to do on this earth. They are to subject the world to God's rule and reign. And they are going to do this with the enemies in the north and the south of Israel with special emphasis on the north. The north, again, really targeted Babylon, who was north of Israel. But more than that, the north was also symbolic of evil and idolatry that we covered last week. So what God makes clear here, then, by sending his chariots of war to the north and to the south, is that through his four spirits, he would crush their enemies. He would crush his enemies. And after doing this, his spirit would be pacified. His spirit would be at rest and at peace after justice is given to the wicked. And so God's people then would also have rest and security when God brought this to pass. What we see then in this final vision beautifully ties together the package of eight visions that we've gone through in these past few weeks. First, this ties in well with the second vision where God promised to abolish evil persecutors through four craftsmen. They would dehorn the enemies of God and take vengeance on his behalf. And what do we see happening here in the eighth vision? God is doing that through his chariots of war. Second, this ties in well to vision three, because it was here that Zechariah called the exiles to flee the land of the north, that is Babylon, because God was going to judge it and destroy it. And what happens here again in the eighth vision? He does exactly that. Third, by doing this, there are also connections to vision seven that we covered last week. God was going to banish evil and wickedness to the land of ancient Babylon in the north. That's what we saw. And so again, in sending his war chariots to the north, he's banishing evil for good. He's wiping out wickedness from his people all at once. And then fourth, we see a connection to the first vision. Whereas in the first vision in chapter 1, the evil nations were at peace and were at rest while God's people lay in defeat. Now the final vision ends with a great reversal. 
Now it's God's people and it's God's spirit that would be at rest while their enemies would be destroyed and defeated. And they would be defeated because God himself, through his four spirits, would vanquish his enemies. And so finally, this brings us back to vision five, where God emphasized and promised that it would not be through strength or might, but it would be through his spirit that his people would prevail. So these visions, all of them, are beautifully tied together in this eighth and final vision here. And what we end up seeing here is a beautiful picture of God in his sovereignty bringing all things into subjection to himself. We see a great reversal of evil and God's people being freed from their oppressors. This final picture then was meant to give Israel hope and comfort in their God. Because as we remember their situation, they were surrounded by physical enemies to the north of them and the south of them and all around them. But here in this vision, God gives them an encouraging word so that they wouldn't get caught up in the fear-mongering happening all around them and so that they wouldn't get caught up in the fearful news that their enemies would win in the end. They need not fear because God assured them that he was with them. And if he was with them and he was for them, their enemies would certainly fall. And so the same is true for us this morning if you know Christ as king. If you know Jesus as your sovereign king over all the earth, then you can say with David in Psalm 118, 6 and 7, the Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on those who hate me. So when we, like the Israelites, feel like we have enemies on all sides of us, when we feel like the world is going up in flames, when we feel bleak and hopeless, remember, God's spirit is with you. He is for you and he is at work banishing his enemies. He is at work banishing evil and he will not rest until it is accomplished. So know this morning that God is for you. He is with you. He has not abandoned you. And we know this because God forsook his own son on the wretched cross so that he might never leave you or forsake you. So let what Jesus did for you on the cross be a constant reminder of God's immeasurable love for you in moments where you are afraid and moments where you doubt his goodness. Let the cross of Christ be a reminder that he is at work banishing evil for our good. Because as Hebrews 9.28 reminds us, Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Except not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly 
waiting for him. The Apostle John pictures this coming salvation and this second coming of Christ, really in Revelation 19. And much like these chariots in this vision, so too Jesus comes in this vision prepared for war. He comes with an army clothed in white. He comes to cleanse the world of evil and wickedness at his return. He will bring all things into subjection to himself as the conquering king. And he will bring safety and security to his people. So as Hebrew 9 puts it before us, will we be those who are eagerly awaiting our king's return here this morning? Are we eagerly preparing ourselves for the king when he comes and we see him face to face? Are we readying ourselves by putting away sin? Are we readying ourselves by obeying what he's commanded us to do in his word? Are we living our lives in such a way that we will not be ashamed when we see him? Or will he find his servants shamefully asleep at the wheel? This is a question we must continually live in light of. Because what we believe about the future and what God is doing in this world will inevitably guide how we live each and every day. So when Jesus returns, will you be found to be a part of his people here on earth? Or will you be found to be an enemy of Jesus Christ? If you don't know Jesus as your king here this morning, let me call you to turn to Jesus as your king and make him your king. Swear allegiance to the one who came to save you, who died and rose again so that we could serve him and love him. And in following Jesus as your king, you will find peace and rest. For we know that when he returns, all evils in this earth will be banished forever. As we come back to our text then, we next find that not only will God banish his enemies forever, but he will also bring his Messiah. In verse 9, we find that the word of God comes to Zechariah once more. But for the first time since the beginning, the word of God comes to Zechariah not in a vision that we're used to, but it comes to him as something he must do. What must Zechariah do? He's called to take up an offering from the exiles who have returned from Babylon, specifically from three men, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. And he is to go that same day to the house of Josiah of Zephaniah, and he's, he's meant to craft a crown. While we wish we knew more about these men, all we know is that they were of the exile and that Zechariah was to take an offering of silver and gold from them. And after doing so, make a crown. As we all know, a crown symbolizes authority and royalty. It symbolizes royal authority. And so upon making this crown, as you're thinking about this, not reading ahead, what do we expect them to do? 
Well, what do you do with crowns? You put it on the head of a king. You put it on the head of royalty. And if you're an Israelite reading it back in this day, we're expecting for them to place it on the head of a person of the Davidic line because that was royalty. This person then would have naturally been Zerubbabel, of whom we already read in the previous visions. For he was of the line of David, and he would have been the most natural person to crown as he was already acting as the governor of his people. But as we continue to read, we are very surprised. Because instead of crowning Zerubbabel of the royal Davidic line, we read that they instead crowned Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest. And so this oddity catches our attention right away. Like, this isn't right. Kings wore crowns. Priests didn't. Priests wore turbans like Joshua did back in vision three. Nevertheless, here we find Joshua, the high priest, being crowned with royal authority. And and we have to wonder at this point, what is going on? Like, this doesn't make sense to us. And thankfully, God tells us the meaning in verse 12. You are to tell him, this is what the Lord of armies says. Here is a man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the Lord's temple. Yes, he will build the Lord's temple, and he will bear royal splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. And he will be a priest on the throne, and there will be peaceful counsel between the two. So in reading what God tells us here, what we first find that what is taking place is a sign act. It's a sign act. Sometimes God's prophets would do a visual sign. And they would do a visual sign to depict what God would do in the future. It was a way to place emphasis on something very important. And so to act something out draws attention to it in a very special, meaningful way. And so through this sign act, what what Zechariah is doing for Joshua, it's drawing special attention to something that God would do in the future. And we better not miss it. So in the words of one scholar, what takes place here isn't a coronation, but it is preparation for what God is about to do. Preparation for what? Preparation for the coming Messiah. This is made evident to us as God would raise up then a branch. This is what we read. God would raise up a branch that Joshua is to symbolize. And in referencing this branch, we remember together that this term was often used by the prophets for the promised Messiah who is of the branch of David. Jeremiah 23, 5 clearly lays this out. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Now, what's important to note here in this passage is that this isn't the first time this branch has been mentioned, right? Like, think way back, like two months ago. When was the first time this branch was mentioned? It was mentioned back in chapter 3, 
in the fourth vision. And so when we think back to this vision here in chapter 3, we remember that Joshua in this vision was to be a symbol of this same branch, right? He would be a symbol of this branch who would take away the sins of the land in a single day and would bring prosperity and peace like at no other time before in Israel's history. And so Joshua here represents, symbolizes this branch for a second time. This is the second time that it's happening. And this time it's happening with the royal crown being placed on his head. So why does this happen a second time? If you're not catching on already, it's because the author wants you to pay attention to this. So don't miss it. Look at what they're trying to emphasize. Look for this coming branch. And then in emphasizing this, it was to remind the people of God what they were to hope for above all, what they were to look forward to. And so that's twice in these eight visions. They are to hope in the coming of this Messiah who would be of the branch of David. The second thing that we notice here then is that this Messiah, this branch of David, would also be a priest king. This is evidence as Joshua the high priest is crowned as a sign of this coming reality. The role of priest and king would fold into this coming Messiah. And while our text is a tad bit convoluted because it's somewhat debated, and that's an understatement, I think the NIV, the NLT, and surprisingly the NASB give the clear meaning of what is being said here. As the NASB puts it for us, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the majesty and sit and rule on his throne, and so he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. I think this makes the best sense of what's going on here. Now, to have one person be both high priest and king was a very rare thing, because traditionally the two offices had been separated, And if you think back to King Saul, back in 1 Samuel 13, he got in trouble and he tried to usurp the role of the high priest, and he ended up having the kingdom stripped away from him forever. That being said, there was a messianic prophecy given by David that spoke of this exact phenomenon. It spoke of the coming priest king. This prophecy is found in Psalm 110, verse 4, in which David prophesies that this coming Messiah would be a priest according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Now keep following along with me. What is significant about Melchizedek? What's significant is that he is the first priest king mentioned explicitly in the Bible. Go back to Genesis 14, you can read it there. And while we don't know much about him, David, receiving divine revelation from God, recognized that the coming Messiah would be a priest king just like Melchizedek. And so in this vision then, this sign act confirms the same message. 
the coming Messiah would be a priest king of the line of David. As New Testament believers, we of course recognize that this prophecy is about Jesus Christ. For Jesus would be of the branch of David. Jesus would be a high priest who could sympathize with all of our weaknesses. And Jesus would become king over all and be seated at the right hand of the Father in glory on high. And so Zechariah says of Jesus our king, here is the man whose name is the branch and he will be clothed with majesty and he will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne. But in contrast to this picture, And what we expect, Jesus would ascend the throne in the most horrific of ways. Because as John 19 verse 5 tells us, he would be crowned. Not with silver and gold. He would be crowned with a crown of thorns. And he would be clothed with majestic purple robe but it would be clothed upon him for the purpose of mocking him. And so of Jesus our king, Pilate would bring him out before the people and he would say, here is the man. In light of this prophecy then we recognize in a new and glorious way, really, God's infinite wisdom and beauty in in Jesus Christ, planned long ago. We glory really in God's wisdom and plan for the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ, who would become king through crucifixion. And so because Jesus is our high priest, he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses that we go through. And as king, He has all authority on earth to save us from our sins through the giving of his life. And so he's there to help each and every one of us, no matter what we're going through. And so here is the man. And we must worship him. And we must run to Jesus. We run to the king who has authority over all the earth. And we long for his return when he will crush all his enemies under his feet. So we look to Jesus and we glory in him as we await his return again. Finally, then, we recognize from this text that Jesus, our Messiah, this branch, would branch out and he would build God's temple at his return. Now, if you're an Israelite hearing this, that the Messiah is going to build the temple, you are very, very confused at this point, okay? Because as we've already mentioned, God promised in vision five that Zerubbabel would build this temple and finish it. And they would have known that Zerubbabel isn't the branch here. He isn't the Messiah because he's not being crowned. So what's going on with this vision? Is the Messiah going to build another temple that's greater than the first? Well, the Israelites definitely didn't have an idea about what's going on here at all. But as New Testament believers, 
we understand what's taking place here and what it meant. Because Jesus, the branch, would branch out across all the world and build another temple not made with human hands, nor would he build a temple where the Almighty would be separated from us by a curtain. Instead, Jesus would build a new and better temple in his people, the church. And as Paul elaborates for us in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, so then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So what Paul makes clear to us is that we, collectively as the church, are the temple of God that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is building. And a part of the beauty of this is that we who were far off who were foreigners, who were Gentiles removed from God, are a part of this temple project. We are part of his holy temple that he is building here on earth. And so if we didn't catch this the first time, let me make it clear. The temple then is not a building. It is a people where God's presence dwells fully. The temple is not a building people and he dwells with us so as first peter 5 says of us we are as living stones a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ so in knowledge that we are the temple of god that jesus is building here today build the church build his temple and we do this together as we build one another up in faith and love, as we serve one another in the church through numerous ways, as we proclaim the gospel, as we sing truths to one another, as we disciple and are discipled by each other, as we strive to live holy lives together in community, as we observe the Lord's Supper each and every week. And as some of us even here this morning are looking to plant churches in other parts of the globe. In these ways, we must build God's temple, the church, here on earth. Because this is God's master plan of salvation put into action. And we, as we serve in these ways, God's presence and his temple is spread further and further across the globe. So get caught up in God's workings here on earth by building his temple. As we come to the close of this text in verse 14, we are then brought back to the crown, the crown that was placed on Joshua's head. And they are commanded then to place this crown in the temple as a memorial. This crown and everything that, that it, it symbolized was to be put in the temple to help them remember something. What was it to remind them of and to remember? At least two things. 
First, the crown was to be a reminder of the exiles represented by these three individuals. But more significantly, it was a reminder. It was a reminder to place their hope in the coming Messiah who would build his temple. So Zechariah's crown would remain in the temple and remind the Israelites of God's promise here to bring his branch until that Messiah came. And while we can only speculate, I wonder when Jesus came, the branch of David, when he came into Jerusalem and he entered the temple, I can't help but wonder, was he looking for Zechariah's crown? I wonder if he saw it and if he was grieved over the rejection of the priests and leadership of Israel who were supposed to accept him and crown him king. I wonder if in looking at the crown, he instead saw the crown of thorns that he was about to wear. And while we can't know, what we do know is what Zechariah leaves us with here. And that is the promise that people who are far off will come and build the Lord's temple. And you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me if you obey the Lord your God. And while this may be in reference to the nearly completed temple of Zerubbabel, it certainly had implications for the temple that Jesus would build. Because Jesus today is drawing people all corners of the earth to build his temple today on earth. They are spreading his kingdom and his presence to all. And so this prophecy is being fulfilled today and it will be completed at Christ's return to his people. So while we wait for our king's return, let us glorify him. Let us praise his name while, he, while we wait because he rules and reigns as king. And as Hebrews 9 tells us, he will return to deliver those who eagerly await him. Let's pray together and go before him in prayer. Father, we are amazed by your infinite wisdom. Who would have thought that your Messiah would suffer the horrific death on the cross to save his people? Who would have thought that he would come, born as in the manger, and yet ascend into glory through death? Lord, we cannot begin to fathom your wisdom or how you work but we praise you and we glorify you for Jesus Christ, our King. And so we ask, Lord, that as your people here on earth, as your temple, may we continue to be a place where God's presence is sensed and seen. May we be a place where your glory shines out. May we be a place that spreads your presence to others. Help us, Lord, to do this as the church for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.